Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. Each week, we interview top experts in physical therapy, pain science, and integrative pain care. You'll learn the most up-to-date information for treating and reversing persistent pain. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Joe Tata. Hey, my friend, welcome to episode number 189 of the Healing Pain Podcast. Today, we're discussing the neuroscience and treatment of focal dystonia. My expert guest this week is Dr. Nancy Bill. Dr. Bill has been a practicing physical therapist for 56 years. She assumed leadership as department chair and participated in academic development, teaching, and administration at the University of California, San Francisco's graduate program in physical therapy. As a clinician and researcher, she's an expert in the cause and treatment of focal dystonia. Working with collaborators in neuroscience, she designed an animal model to study the etiology of focal hand dystonia and created a paradigm shift in the understanding of focal dystonia as a case of neural maladaptation of sensory and motor processing. Using imaging techniques, her team demonstrated that learning-based sensory motor training for patients with focal dystonia not only improves sensory discrimination and accuracy, but modify the topography of the sensory cortex, improve neuronal firing patterns, and improve motor control. On today's episode, you'll learn all about the cause and the treatment of focal dystonia, as well as Dr. Bill's evolution as a physical therapist, both in research, academia, and clinical practice. Okay, let's get started and let's meet Dr. Nancy Bill and discuss focal dystonia. Hi there, Nancy. Thanks for joining me this week on the podcast. Well, hi, Joe. I think this should be fun. I'm looking forward to talking with you. It's fun. I've heard about your work for so many years, and I finally had the opportunity to meet you in person at Combined Sections meeting in Denver, and we talked, and I got to know you and some of your family members, which was really nice, and I was honored to have a meal with you guys and learn all about you, and of course, about your career as a physical therapist, both in clinical practice and research and education. We're going to talk about focal hand dystonia today on the podcast, a very specific diagnosis. And I know you have lots of ways to help people, clinicians, as well as people who struggle with this problem. But take us back a little bit into your career and let us know kind of how you got started. I graduated from UCSF back in 1963 with a baccalaureate degree, which, as everyone knows, is not in the keeping with current education. I worked first year in Children's Hospital, and then I moved to acute care in Public Health Hospital and finally to a county hospital working in acute care. But when I came back to UCSF after moving around with my husband, I realized that physicians didn't know very much about physical therapy and that I needed to at least broaden my education and increase my exposure. So I went back to get a master's in public health from UC Berkeley and was in a class of 50 where 48 of them were physicians and I was the only physical therapist. And the scary part, was two of the women in this class happened to have been in my husband's medical school class. So it was a little bit intimidating, but I learned a lot about marketing and interdisciplinary education, more exposure in the community. And after I got my master's, I called UCSF in the Division of Ambulatory Medicine, and I said, I think you need me on your faculty. And the chair was so taken by my audacity to suggest that that he invited me for an interview. So I interviewed with the chair of ambulatory medicine, who later became the associate dean of the School of Medicine. 
So I was the, given two jobs, really. One was to work with researchers at UCSF to help them broaden their goals and objectives to look at translating their findings to practice or improving care. And then also we started a primary care residency program, which was pediatrics and internal medicine. And then I was the outcomes reviewer. And while I was there, I suggested that I offer an elective in physical therapy and rehabilitation to medical students or students in nursing, pharmacy, or dentistry. So we ran a course for about five years, an elective course on rehabilitation. And I invited a couple of the physiatrists to do the course with me. So after having a master's, and I was an advisor to the dean on the curriculum and physical therapy at UCSF, which was chronically being threatened with uh, being closed because the dean didn't want to give the program any money. So I decided the only way I was going to change anything was to go back and get my doctorate and then come back and be a faculty member. The PT program had been at UCSF for 42 years at that time, and there had never been a faculty member who ever had received tenure. So I got my PhD from UC Berkeley in a joint program with San Francisco State in education, actually, special ed, and then was able to do some neuroscience research at UC Berkeley. So when I finished my program, I took a faculty position at UCSF in the curriculum of physical therapy. And uh, two weeks after I'd been there, they had accreditation site visit and the program was placed on probation. And partly, not because the program was bad, but the chair was not a physical therapist. And that's a requirement for accreditation. So the dean called me. I'd only been there a couple weeks. He called me and he said, I would like you to be the chair, the acting chair. And I said, no, I was unwilling to do that. He needed to recruit a tenured faculty member to be chair. And because I'd already been on the faculty for about four years before going back to get my PhD, it would have been hard for me to become a tenured faculty. So I said I wouldn't take the job. So then the vice dean called me and said, Nancy, you have to do it. And I said, you're my mentor, but I can't do it unless they're going to give this a tenured appointment. So after much to do, I finished my dissertation, and I was in an in-residence position and then transferred into a tenure line position, which meant I had to be productive with research, and I had to do it within five years. I was unable to find a partner in my interest in vestibular processing and learning, so I decided to do wound healing because the vice chair of surgery invited me to join his lab. So I learned a lot about wound healing, hyaluronic acid, hemianic fluid, the use of TENS, phonophoresis, and working in an animal-based uh, protocol. And we were particularly interested in oxygen delivery as a way to uh, improve wound healing. And the same with uh, early wound healing with hyaluronic acid and amniotic fluid. And while that was wonderful, at the same time, I became the consultant for the health program for performing arts. And in that setting, learned a lot about the problems of performing artists, particularly this problem of hand dystonia. So now that I had my foot in the door, and we were well published in wound healing, I could then pursue my interest in hand dystonia and joined with the um, faculty in neuroscience and Dr. Mike Mersnick and began my studies on primate research and the effect of uh, repetitive movement training and what happens to the cortex. 
Wow, thanks for sharing that history. I mean, it's a beautiful history, actually. I'm sure there are a couple of bumps and barriers along the way, but you've obviously overcome them. Tell us how many years you taught at the university. I was there, I believe, a total of almost 40 years. And I became a professor emeritus back in 2010 and have continued to be involved in mentoring students and doing some teaching and particularly giving lectures for different groups that are not necessarily associated with the university. But I was very fortunate to be uh, tenured. I was the first tenured faculty at UCSF. And then I was able to get one other tenured appointment with Kimberly Top. And so we now, I think, have three tenured faculty at UCSF. And when we started the program to change the bachelor's program to a master's, I knew the only way to make it more difficult for the dean to try to terminate the program was to join with San Francisco State, and we became the first joint program in physical therapy at a master's level. And then we transitioned over the years to entry-level DPT and went from 30 students to currently 60 students, which I think is too many, but that being said. But the partnership has been an interesting one since one is... They're both public universities, but one is in the Cal State system and one is in the University of California. University of California is supposed to be a doctoral level, graduate level training, and the Cal State is supposed to be mostly undergraduate up to some master's programs. But with the DPT, we had to go to the legislature, and because we were a joint program, we were able to argue that all the master's programs in the Cal State system should be allowed to do a DPT. Otherwise, they'd have to start all new programs in the state of California, which did not make a lot of sense. So it was quite an interesting journey. And I think it's been one of the best things that we've ever done for that program. And we were able to start a faculty practice. We now have two residency programs. So we have done a lot since the days when I got a baccalaureate degree. (laughs) It's interesting to hear your own personal journey through your own education from a bachelor's to a doctorate, as well as at the same time, the entire profession is changing as well, going from a bachelor's to a master's. And as you mentioned, now a DPT. And of course, you wound up being the department chair for many, many years. And you've done, as you mentioned, you've done amazing work in California. Let's talk about kind of some of the brain research and how you started to kind of dip your toe in that water. Because a lot of what you have studied and researched is not only used in like focal dystonia, but it also comes up in other like pain science education, other areas. And it's informed a lot of different parts of physical therapy and rehabilitation. I do want to say that the reason we were successful at UCSF is I had great faculty. And those faculty were committed for almost as many years as I was. And so we all had to change. And I think one of the strong things about change and changing as a group is that we were all supportive of each other, Mm. including encouraging people to do more research. So in this problem of dystonia, I had taken a video of several different patients who had this focal dystonia, and I showed them to uh, Michael Mersnick, who I call the father of neuroscience. And he had been doing a lot of work on plasticity for many years. In fact, his first work was on auditory plasticity, and he was the first to apply his findings to the development of the first cochlear implant. So I knew that he was potentially open for something new. 
And if I was willing to work with primates, which is getting up at three in the morning and training monkeys because, you know, they are, they sleep during the day and they're awake at night. So you kind of have to be there 24-7. And so when Mike looked at this, this movement dysfunction, it didn't make any sense from a, a logical, organic, cortical motor understanding of why this movement dysfunction was only during voluntary performance of a target task. It was only one limb. It was responsive to changing position, like if you turn somebody upside down on a inversion traction, the dystonia would get better. Mm -hmm. If you put on some sensory kind of enhancers, then the dystonia would get better. So we were very interested in whether we could produce this dystonia by repetitive task training. So Nancy May monkeys are small, really not very socially friendly, but not dangerous either, as a macaque can actually be dangerous. So we created a hand squeezing task that we asked the monkeys to do repetitively for as long as we could get them to do it to get food. And they knew that we couldn't deprive them really. So every time they squeezed the handpiece, they got a little more food. But some of the monkeys didn't like doing that and they're just like people. And I learned right then that there are some people who are driven to do what you ask them to do. And there are some people who could care less about doing it and won't do it until they get what they want anyway. So there were the monkeys that didn't want to train and the monkeys who trained incredibly quickly to get more and more food. They didn't really get fat because they were kind of type A personalities. But we were able to train them. And then when we saw they were having difficulty doing the task, then we decided it was ready to map the monkey. And brain mapping is no easy task. It takes about five days, 24-7. You have to have a team. You have to have somebody, preferably a physician, who will anesthetize the monkey and keep the monkey healthy and doing well while we map the brain. So we had a team, and we rotated the team over five days, mapping continuously. And the map was a mess. It did not meet the expectations of a logical, topographically organized map. And when I showed the data to Dr. Mersnick, he said, oh, you guys just don't know how to map. And I said, well, then maybe you should come in for the next monkey and you do the mapping because these maps are really very, very strange. There would be very large maps, what should be very small receptive fields, and they may be representing the whole hand instead of even just the segment of the, the digit. So Mike came in the next time we mapped and he said, you're right, this is a mess. And that allowed us to publish the data on what high levels of repetition can do in terms of modifying the topography of the brain. Now he knew that the map was very definitively organized and he had a lot of proof of that from previous work. So when he saw that you could degrade the map, then he found some other interesting things like how the map gets degraded if you have an amputation or how the map gets degraded if you have some kind of injury. So then the question was, if we can degrade the map, then can we restore the map? And so we did the degrading studies with monkeys, and then we started mapping the brains of human subjects and saw their maps were similar to what the monkeys were. And then we started working on a, developing a retraining program. So really, some of the initial work around neuroplasticity <laughs> with regard to what we know in physical therapy today. So 
when you're talking about the mapping, for those of that are not clinicians who may be listening to this podcast, in your brain, that's a representation of your hand. And usually it's very clear and distinct, but through either too much movement with the monkeys grasping multiple times or multiple repetitions or less movement than normal, those maps change. And you found that with that repetitive task, the distinct image or let's say circumference of the hand now start to spread to other parts of the brain and take over, so to speak. Right. And it's similar to what they found with pain. So in this repetitive movement, we saw that the topography or the location of the hand got bigger than normal, but the definitive and descriptive and distinctive representation of each of the parts of the hand were degraded. So the receptive fields were very, very large and were no longer precisely represented. So people had trouble with sensory discrimination, for example, because the receptive fields were too large. What's interesting is that you also learn that when you put an electrode in a neuron and you keep it there for a period of time, it's incredibly noisy. That tells you the neuron is alive and well. But when you put a an electrode in a neuron that is not alive and well, silent. You know, you get no representation, electrical discharge. So it's very interesting to see. We had one case with, we had a monkey, and we actually put the electrodes on the hand, part of the brain, before we started to train the monkey. So we knew it was precisely on the hand location. And the hand is located near the face, for example. So one of two things tends to happen, either in an overuse or a traumatic event or even something like a stroke or head injury, the representation can either get too big or it can get really small. So in this particular monkey, we had the electrodes over the hand and as the monkey developed a dystonia, it was very similar to the the research we'd done with our own monkeys, but this monkey was just trying to discriminate two points, whether there was one or two. And he got very anxious and nervous about being right, because again, he gets his food that way. And what happened was that as the hand degraded in its functional movement, then what happened is that the part where we had the electrodes over the hand, that became the face. So the topography, the face expanded into the area that used to be the hand in this particular monkey doing the task he was doing Rather than enlarging, it was shrinking the map and also degrading the representation. So it was kind of fascinating to have that clear event and then to be able to show with magnetic source imaging, we could show the same things in patients with Hansonia. We could see that the the neuron was excessively firing, so it was hypersensitive with too much excitation, didn't have enough inhibition. And once it turned on, it turned on with a huge magnitude of firing, much larger than you would expect in normal. And then they couldn't turn it off, which is one of the things about doing EMG on a patient with hand dystonia, that when you put the electrode in the muscle dystonic, the muscle is firing excessively large amplitude, and then they can't turn it off. It takes them a long time to turn it off. You could turn it off in maybe 10 milliseconds, and they can't turn it off for 100 milliseconds, let's say, which explains this over-exaggerated movement dysfunction you see in focal dystonia. And let's talk about that for a minute. So for those who don't know what a focal dystonia is, just explain to everyone what a focal dystonia is and what a 
focal hand dystonia is, what that really means clinically as far as what you might see symptom-wise? Well, of interest, generalized dystonia is the third most common movement disorder in the world. But generalized dystonia is usually related to some kind of genetic familial risk factor. Where focal dystonia, we haven't really defined any genetic risk factors except the possibility of Ashkenazi Jewish patients having a higher risk for focal dystonias. But if focal dystonia is an unusual movement disorder, it tends to be an end range fixed twisting posture at that end range with or without a tremor. It appears only when doing using a particular limb, like in a hand dystonia. It's mostly just the hand that has got the dystonic movements, but we now see some compensatory responses in the whole arm, not just the hand. Now, in addition, the, the movement disorder is only present during voluntary movement. It's quiet at rest. There's normal reflexes. There is not hyperreflexia. There's a worsening of the dystonia under stress. And then when things are relaxed and stress is managed, the dystonia is less. And there's a very unusual sensory trick that is associated with most of these focal dystonias. That is, I find something I can do to minimize this abnormal movement. And with the neck, for example, had a patient who could chew on a toothpick. And when he would chew on a toothpick, then his dystonia would be less. With the hand, if somebody wears, puts on a glove, often the dystonia is less. Or if you put tape on the finger, the dystonia is less. Or as I described before, if I inverted someone, put them upside down, the dystonia is less. So part of my retraining is to put people in unusual positions in order to start the retraining. Probably one of the unusual movement disorders that affected by position, it's also affected by the environment. So when it's cold, the dystonia may be worse. When it's warm, the dystonia is less. If you go up into the altitude, some of the patients who are musicians can play well when they're up on in the mountains, and then they come back to the usual altitude and the dystonia is present again. So it's a very interesting disorder, and there are some clearly psychosocial risk factors. Uh, somebody who's a perfectionist, somebody who's perseverative, you know, can't stop, somebody who's phobic, and those characteristics tend to be associated with the people who develop these vocal dystonias. Even though when first discovered in musicians, they felt it was psychological, that these people were psychotic. There were no abnormal neurophysiological testing that could be indicative of the dystonia. No therapy made any difference. Even counseling didn't help. And there was a very high suicide rate in the early days of those patients who developed these focal dystonias, particularly musicians. But it's not just musicians. They're you know, work-related musculoskeletal disorders, working on a factory line, being on the computer, being a programmer, hairdresser. It's pretty fascinating that these dystonias, golfers, yep, is another one. So these little focal dystonias are either labeled by the part affected, you know, a hand dystonia versus a foot dystonia, or the task that's involved. So somebody with a foot dystonia may have a runner's dystonia, and that the running is what elicits the abnormal movement. Musician's dystonia or writer's cramp, somebody who gets the dystonia only when writing. So it's pretty specific. And there are no diagnostic tests, by the way, to differentiate this movement disorder from other 
kinds of movement conditions. So it's not unusual that people go up to 10 years before the diagnosis is made. Many of them have unnecessary surgeries, releasing techniques, and, and in fact, they don't get better. And everybody wonders why they don't get better. So it's a difficult diagnosis to make. And I think physical therapists need to have their awareness of this movement dysfunction, particularly in patients with chronic pain. But that's not the only condition on which you would see it. I think we treat a lot of patients with cervical neck problems and they have a cervical dystonia, but nobody picks it up. Connecting what you said back to the, those monkey studies. So you had the monkeys doing repetitive tasks and then you mentioned maybe the, the association with certain types of occupations with certain dystonias. Is repetitive injury or repetitive task associated with the development of a dystonia? For the most part, yes, but the risk factor may vary. So in a musician, besides these personality characteristics, if somebody changes their instrument, they increase the intensity and the length of their practice, the amount of time they're practicing, they try to get better and better and better, they are likely to be ones who develop the dystonia. Similarly, if somebody is doing a task and they have an injury, let's say they're in a motor vehicle accident, but they're also doing programming, computer programming, not necessarily just musicians, but they have a motor vehicle accident and that trauma is associated with going back to do that repetitive task and finding their hand just doesn't work like it used to. And because the fine motor skills of those individuals who have these dystonias, the fine motor skills are still normal. So it's only this task performance that brings on the involuntary movement. So stress is another case where you increase your adrenaline and um, you get faster and faster and faster but you still want to go faster, and they call it a loss of homeostatic plasticity. That means that I used to play the piano, and I practiced a lot, played with the symphony in high school, played with the dance band and so on, but I knew I would never be wonderful right, at playing the piano. I never would make that my career because I recognized that, and even though I might work harder, I didn't give it, really get a lot better. But that loss of homeostatic plasticity seems to be also characteristic of this development of dystonia. When you know that you're maybe as good as you can be, your brain doesn't stop until it starts to fire abnormally. And it can no longer differentiate the individual movements, the sequential movements that doesn't have to be exactly the same. And Dr. Porterone calls this lack of homeostatic plasticity as one of the hypotheses about the origin of dystonia. We called it aberrant learning hypothesis, where you got to the place where the intensity was such that you just changed the way you did it until you lost the control of your hand. Mm -hmm. And those two hypotheses are probably what has driven most of the intervention strategies by therapists. The other thought is that this is an anatomic neurophysiological problem of an imbalance of excitation and inhibition. You get too much excitation, you can't turn it off. That leads to these abnormal movements. And that you can find abnormalities in the basal ganglia, and the motor and the sensory cortex, and the sensory motor cortex and the premotor cortex. And all of these you know, neurophysiological consequences, the question is, are they cause or are they the effect? And since the diagnosis is made after many years of abnormal movements, 
I don't think we have the answer now for what is cause and what is effect. Right. So it may not be a purely disinhibitory problem. That may be a sequelae of what's happened over the course of many years. Correct. It's like, why does it take us so long to diagnose Parkinson's disease? So part of trying to identify these early movement disorders, particularly these dystonias, as I think our opportunity to improve their performance is greater the earlier you address it. And while people who are experts, I gave a talk at a running symposium, and uh, they gave me an hour to talk about uh, runner's dystonia. And everybody said, oh, I've, I've never seen a patient with runner's dystonia. And then after the conference, you know, people are emailing me saying, oh, my gosh, I have a patient with runner's dystonia. Well, I am sure that they'd seen a lot of other people who have unusual patterns of movement, particularly gait patterns and running patterns. You know, some people look like they were born to run, and some people look like they shouldn't be running. And I kind of wonder how many of those people that are really awkward, you know, in their running, maybe have some form of dystonia. And they tend to be the ones that run a lot or run at night when there's a little bit of anxiety about being at night out by yourself, you know, you have a little flashlight, what if. So, you know, there are a lot of variables in the environment that increase the risk for developing these uh, unusual movements. And also hairdressers. Have you ever watched the hairdresser and how many times they are clipping their scissors all day long for eight to 10 hours a day, depending on what their income is? And there is a hairdresser's dystonia. There's a belly button dystonia. There's a golfer's yip. I mean, there's just an incredible number of these uh, focal dystonias that people haven't put all together to say, you know, the cause is it's pretty similar. And do they coincide with the mapping in our brain with regard to the somatosensory cortex? So since there's more real estate for, let's say, the face and the hand and other parts of the face, like the tongue and lips, jaw, are people more likely to have focal dystonias of the hand and the head and potentially part of the neck? Or is it just specific to the person? There are a lot of individual differences for sure. But those areas of the brain... And the maps of those parts that occupy a large proportion of our brain seem to be the most commonly involved. So blepharospasm is the eyelids. How many times do you blink your eyelids? If you play a horn, how much do you use your lips? If you're a singer and or you're a teacher, how much do you use your voice? And one of the problems has been if people have to move from one modality to the next, let's say... A patient has a hand dystonia, so they maybe change and become a teacher or something like that. So they're using their voice. They might be more likely to get a spasmodic dysphonia, which is the uh, dystonia of the larynx and speaking. So those parts of your body that are particularly well represented seem to be more likely affected. The foot is not a large representation, although it's a bigger representation of the whole leg. The foot gets more space than the rest of the leg. But again, it's not as common. Runner's dystonia is much less common than the other hand-type dystonias. But you're right, and they're all difficult to treat. And sometimes you see people who have both. And I treated a physician who had a cervical dystonia, and she never knew that she had a problem. And she was married to a physician. And what was interesting is that she had a very nice way that she had you know, copped her head to really listen to people when she was taking their history and that she didn't look like she had an unusual problem, but she couldn't keep her head straight. 
And when she got together with her friends from medical school, they said, oh my gosh, what's wrong with your neck? And she said, nothing. And they said, oh yes, there is. You know, you didn't used to look like that, they said. And that led her to this whole thing about developing this cervical dystonia, or at least having the diagnosis made. She also had a herniated disc and they removed the disc, but it didn't impact the cervical dystonia. So there, you've got to be really careful. I had a guy who did have Botox for his cervical dystonia, and uh, they tried to release the extensors of the neck so it wasn't bothering him quite so much. And his head literally fell down onto his chest because he didn't have enough muscle strength to keep his head up straight. A very, very scary situation, particularly for him. Yeah. On this podcast, we are always talking about conservative management first and to try to be a little patient with it, go as long as you can. Because oftentimes, as we're talking about, neuroplasticity does kick in and people notice functional changes and changes that impact their quality of life. You mentioned earlier the gentleman who was chewing on a toothpick and it helped alleviate his dystonia, putting people inverted position or upside down helped alleviate the dystonia. So my clinician mind is saying, okay, there's some kind of sensory input that we can challenge or modify that may help a dystonia. How does that relate to the profession of physical therapy and physical therapy treatment itself for dystonia? Posture and postural writing responses are the reflexes you want to keep throughout your life. And you'd like them to be sharp, responding quickly, keeping you from falling, maintaining your balance and improving your posture. Posture definitely seems to be a a central element here. So even if you have a hand dystonia, most of those patients with hand dystonia do have some integrated balance problems that should be addressed. And even in the sensory retraining world and hand dystonia, like writer's cramp, for example, Dr. Bluetone, who's back in France, found that if he really worked hard on posture and got everybody in a good postural neutral, that the writer's cramp would get better and people could self-correct But when you weren't paying attention to your posture and your posture kind of took a a downhill slide, then the writing cramp got worse. So you can see that it's posture writing and balance is to me integral to all movement disorders. I don't care what they are, not just dystonia, but that is kind of the foundation on which you have a stable trunk, a stable base on which you can then program the rest of your body. Even though you're working on the hand, people say to me, well, why do I care about their balance? And that's very interesting. And the other part of that is your brain needs a ton of oxygen. And in the wound healing research that we've done on oximeter reading tells you a lot about general oxygen levels. And you'll find that people who are in repetitive tasks don't drink enough water. They don't take time to eat well. They stay up late. They don't sleep well. They're under lots of stress. If you did a 10,000 keystrokes today. They used to post that you need to do 15,000 tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And so lifestyle management becomes another very important part of neuroplasticity and relearning and changing the brain. So I think there are kind of three phases to this idea of re-education and neuroplasticity. Probably the first one is making sure people have the right medical management plan. There are people who are very responsive to Botox injections There are people who do well with, you know, anxiety medication, antidepressants, and things like that. And if those help, then even levodopa sometimes can help in dystonia, particularly the dystonia associated with Parkinson's disease. The second is to prime the nervous system for learning. 
If you can't relieve the stress, you're unwilling to get a positive lifestyle, get a good night's sleep, have good nutrition, stay well hydrated to keep your oxygen levels up, have good exercise program, even though you think you don't have the time to do it, those lifestyle characteristics really prime your nervous system to learn. We also learned that doing strengthening inspiration, for example, will increase your O2 for normal healthy people as well as people who are trying to retrain their brain. And remote limb ischemic conditioning now is uh, something we found does improve our motor control of our upper limbs. Even when we're healthy and normal, we can be a little more coordinated. But in case of stroke, they're using remote limb ischemic conditioning to minimize the extent of the stroke as well as rehab the patient after stroke. So there are lots of, like mindfulness training probably is one of the most important things. Then the third step is actually retraining the brain. And you kind of have to do the most important thing first, and that is to stop the abnormal movements. Whether you have to use a sensory trick, whether you can only do mental practice, not physical practice, but if you keep repeating the abnormal movements, guess what? You just keep teaching yourself the abnormal movements. So you've got to figure out ways that people can stop doing that. And those people want to work. They want to have an income. They want to perform. And that's probably one of the hardest things is to stop them from performing the abnormal movements and go to mental practice, use imagery. And imagery is very effective in activating about 30% of the neurons that you use to do a particular task, you will recruit those neurons to do that task, about 30% of them, if you just imagine doing the task normally. And that's pretty impressive. And you also have not only mapped about your anatomy, but your brain is also mapped by function. And so one of these issues about developing the cochlear implant is that the occipital cortex has its topography also but it also has its functional map for different kinds of hearing, different kinds of sounds. And so our functional task is you've got to figure out ways to remap the functional aspects of that topography as well as the anatomical segment of the topography. So those three things are necessary. If there's medication that helps, if there is non-invasive brain stimulation that primes the brain to control the balance between inhibition and excitation, all those things that we can do to prime the nervous system will help you make your brain retraining more effective. And believe it or not, motivation, compliance, having fun, doing things that are hard for therapists, I think, to create repetitive, progressive task practice that is actually fun. So I believe that when you laugh, you increase your endorphins, it helps control your pain, and it also helps improve your learning. And that's really an important part of retraining the brain. And we often make things boring. And it's important to make sure you encourage people to laugh and have fun and not be depressed. They've got a movement challenge, for example, that's bearing with their profession. But in reality, they have a lot to play in getting better. Are we 100% in our treatment? The only type 1 evidence we have today for focal dystonia is injection of Botox. And the injection of Botox just weakens the dystonic muscle, needs to be repeated about every three months. Uh, there's some new information that if you continue that kind of injection, that maybe there is some brain learning that goes along with that if you're also getting some brain retraining in addition to the Botox. Musicians don't tend to like the Botox because it interferes with their 
performance, mm-hmm. so most of them are short-term users of Botox. For sensory motor retraining, interestingly enough, the improvement is somewhere between 60 and 90%, whichever strategy you choose. And as you know, there are many different sensory motor retraining strategies. So your improvement is somewhere between 60 and 80%, rarely 100%, although some people do report 100% cure, like David Leisner, who is a guitarist who claims he's 100% cured, or this young man on this TED Talk and YouTube who uh, cured his cervical dystonia with dancing, Mm. very aggressive jazz-type dancing, and his dystonia, he feels, is totally cured. But the improvement is somewhere between 60 and 80%. The disappointing part is the patient thinks they're better, the clinician thinks the patient is better, but any objective measures, kinematic measures that we can make of the dystonic movements may not show any improvement, which is disappointing. So I want to go back to that TED Talk for a moment. So there's a gentleman who had a cervical dystonia who self-reports that he cured his dystonia through dancing. Yes, and he was working with Dr. Farias, who is a PhD psychologist who claims that his neuromuscular retraining program is effective. He's even written a book and you can look up his book. But this gentleman was so frustrated because he was in marketing and he needed to look together. You know, he's a handsome gentleman, but with his neck turning involuntarily all the time, he really couldn't do his job. And so he was walking to work one day and he actually put on a headset and was playing music. And as he was playing the music, he kind of was moving I was listening to a TED Talk yesterday with exactly the same thing, that movement and music, you know, engage the whole nervous system. It's not just that you're listening, but you see people sway in the audience. You see people bobbing their heads because they're translating that movement to their own, or the music to their own movement. So as he was walking along, listening to this music, and the music got more engaging and a little more, a lot of hard sounds with a definite beat, He realized that he was walking along and he was kind of bouncing along with the music and his head was in control. Mm -hmm. And so he said to Dr. Ferris, you know, I think I think I can dance my way out of this. So he had very hard rock music. It's really loud and it's got a very definite beat. And I can send you the YouTube. It is really pretty amazing to watch. And, And it's called Rewiring the Brain. And he feels like that dance in his movements is what rewired his brain. And the same with, if you don't like to go out and run for your exercise, dancing with Nia or doing some of the tango stuff and doing some of the rhythmic, Nia tends to be based on neuromuscular progression and getting it to more detailed kind of movement strategies. And there are people who do Nia and think that it's helped their dystonia, even if it's a hand dystonia. Because again, you're just reprogramming neurodevelopmentally some of these movement strategies, and then ultimately integrating them into a dancing format. It was very impressive. And David Leisner has an impressive story, and he has a book that just came out. And he has the same frustration that I do, that he thinks he knows how to help people cure dystonia, but they won't listen to him, that they won't do what he asks them to do. They say what he's asking is not possible to be a good guitarist, even though David himself is not only a composer and a teacher, but he is also a performing artist. Mm. And he's just a wonderful gentleman who kind of figured out his own way to say, you know, it's not my hand driving my hand. It's really my brain driving my hand. 
and I need to do less, not more, in order to get that fine motor, quick responsiveness that you need a classical guitarist. So I can send you a couple of those. The other person who's been remarkable about working with patients with dystonia on the piano is Dorothy Taubman. Dorothy herself is passed away, but she's trained a lot of teachers across the United States. And her son was an orthopedic surgeon, and he tried to convince her that people are not going to be playing well on the piano. They use the long finger flexors and extensors, but rather using the intrinsic muscles of the hand to really stabilize the hand so that the fingers can move more smoothly and easily in performing the task. So she has some wonderful training tapes as well. I'm sure there's lots of lessons from that TED talk that when you watch it, you know, I'm sure your physical therapy mind is kind of blinking like a flashing red light saying there are a lot of things that we can take from this video and from this story and apply it to clinical practice, like even just music. I mean, some practices do play music, but this particular gentleman found a particular imagining song or type of music that probably changed the context of his disease process and condition. And I'm sure it was reprogramming. Yeah. You know, there's no question that he had managed to then balance inhibition and excitation where before there was this overexcitation and he could not figure out how to balance that. So that the problems, this imbalance, this um, neurophysiological processing is just as important as the anatomical things that we describe. Mm -hmm. And certainly the magnetic source imaging, which is a dynamic process looking at how your brain responds to a stimulus. And even David Leisner said, I don't have a sensory problem. And I said, but you, all you did was sensory retraining to retrain your hand dystonia. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you spent hours feeling every string on his guitar, thickness of the string, had every finger touch that string, find out what the tension was on the string to really produce the sound on different parts of every finger. And he spent hours doing that, not really playing the guitar, but in fact, doing the sensory retraining. And he never thought of it in that way. But basically, there's a sensory part. Sensory is the input system and motor is the output system. And I sometimes think as physical therapists, we're focused way too much on the motor output when we should be really talking about the sensory input. And Braille reading, Braille cards. I get people to buy Braille cards. I have men who said, I'll never learn to read Braille. And I said, okay, well, we're going to play poker and you're going to have to bet some money, and you're going to be blindfolded. So if you don't know how to read your card, you're not going to know how to bet your cards. And that was very inspiring, particularly to men, to say, okay, I'll figure out how to at least read these playing cards. But most seeing people have a very hard time learning Braille, and Dr. Zuner has done a lot of work on Braille reading as a treatment for patients with a hand dystonia that have writer's cramp in particular. And again, when people are quiet and they're controlled and stress is managed, they can write pretty well following a brain braille retraining program. But when they get stressed, of course, then there's that imbalance. I have a patient who actually was interviewed. See if I can find that reference for you. And the way she maintained her ability to play the piano, despite her dystonia, was to do braille every day. So she did braille for maybe a half hour in the morning. She'd braille at night, and when she would do that, she could perform beautifully. You would never know she had a dystonia. Is that because it's different sensory input than what she's typically doing on a daily basis? 
And remember, most of Braille reading is sensory. Yeah. There's very little movement. You kind of drag your hand over the letters, but there's very little movement. So what you're training is kind of the graphesthesia, stereognosis type information, and that sensory, that kind of reorganizing of the sensory inputs really drives better motor outputs. So you can't improve motor without really addressing sensory. But the motor cortex has the same change in topography as the hand. So it loses its precise and distinctive representation. It's just harder to measure the motor topography than it is to measure sensory topography because the sensory cortex is in the parietal area and it's fairly superficial. But we did try to map the thalamus in patients in uh, monkeys with uh, hand dystonia. And even in a monkey, which is a lot smaller than we are, the thalamus is very, very deep. And it's really hard to map the thalamus, but people are getting better at it. And we got better at the task. But thalamus is also, topography is disorganized in the thalamus as well as the cortex. Are there lessons here we can apply to other types of diagnosis, things that may kind of sound or look similar like Parkinson's disease? Absolutely. There's a sensory processing problem with patients with Parkinson's. They do better with uh, sensory aspects of their program in addition to motor. They do better with dual tasking because now we know that cognitive attention is absolutely essential for brain retraining. You must be attentive to the task. It must be repetitive. It must be progressed in difficulty. It must be carried out over time. It has to be engaging so you're willing to do it. And patients with Parkinson's, I ran a Parkinson's group at UCSF, and we had everybody on the Alter-G. Everybody was running. And simultaneously, they were either doing crossword puzzles, they were catching and throwing balls, or they were solving lateral puzzles. So they were doing what I call the dual tasking with a cognitive element. At the same time, they were doing a motor task that was very difficult for them to do over ground. But in the Alter-G, you can unweight people so that they can, first of all, you're not going to fall because you're unweighted with air and you're in a kind of a little capsule and so you feel confident that you're not going to fall, whereas if you're over ground, you can potentially stumble and fall and hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. So there are sensory processing. We wrote a paper about that back in probably 1990, and that was the first time you know a lot of the neurologists had really looked at the sensory processing part of Parkinson's disease, and certainly the, the issues of imaging and some dystonic movements in patients with Parkinson's that develop these unusual end-range posturing problems, very similar to dystonia, sometimes in response to the dopamine over a long term. So all of these tasks, these sensory motor processing, graded motor imagery, are good for patients post-stroke. They're good for patients with MS. They're good for patients with Parkinson's. You know, I've kept people with ALS, uh, you know, living longer and I had a couple of emails from old patient family saying, how are you? And, you know, that kind of thing, because I kept their people at least independent until the the disease took its major toll. But Parkinson's disease has a neurodegenerative component too. And you can address that by trying to increase attention to unregulate dopamine. There are even some people like Mike Mersnick who think you shouldn't start dopamine very early, but instead increase attention and drive cognition to upregulate dopamine so that the patient has the dopamine they need to stay healthy and not depend on an external dopamine. 
Now, unfortunately, there are no randomized trials on that particular theory at the moment, but it makes sense. It's logical. I'm so glad you brought the sensory component into the talk today, because I think you're right. As far as the profession goes, at least physical therapy, we are very motor driven. We learned about a lot of sensory integration, more like the developmental stages in children, adolescents, babies, of course. And I think somehow we lose it in midlife. And then it seems like we kind of pick it up again in later life. But it really needs to be a through line with no matter who you're treating in some ways. And you're really talking about, in some ways, complex movements. So often in a physical therapy clinic, you may see very straight, plain, basic type movements that don't really have great functional carryover. It is tough in the current world of therapy to have people come to you long enough and for a long enough period of time for each treatment, not just 15 minutes, that you can do this integrative study. So I have a patient who's a concussion, had a motor vehicle accident with a severe concussion and significant brain damage. And so I put on finger vibrators she has her fingers vibrating. And then I do this remote limb conditioning with the blood pressure cuff. I don't know if you have ever done that. So five, you take the blood pressure cuff up to 20 millimeters above their resting systolic. And then you keep it there for five minutes on, five minutes off. You do five series. I do that. And at the same time, we're working on some of the musculoskeletal issues that she has relative to her knees and so on. And then even when we're working on balance, I take off the remote limb ischemic conditioning, but I try to keep on the finger vibration. And while I work on distracting her neck or doing some manual things to her neck, she is actually reading braille cards. Mm. So, you know, you can combine these things. And of course, everybody's looking at us and the therapist that I work with volunteering in his practice, you know, laughs and everybody looks over and they laugh. And then the next thing you know, they're asking if they can try these things as well. So you can minimize the time it takes, but it takes some creative problem solving to do all elements. And I do a lot of games. Uh, My patients are working on integrative balance by playing racket games. I try to have them come early before the clinic is too full. And then patients come in and say, well, that looks like a lot more fun than what I'm doing. That kind of thing. So, uh, you know, I think there are ways to integrate it, but it it does take thinking outside the box. It's sort of like Mosley and his application of these techniques and his graded motor imagery. And part of that came from uh, the documentation that we showed you can change the topography and reinforced in his view with some of the work that's been done with imaging that shows that you really do activate these different parts of your brain with graded motor imagery or mirror imagery and Ramachandran and his uh, phantom limb pain and how to get rid of it using mirror imagery. So I do all these things with my patients with dystonia and they can do them at home if they're willing. And that's, you need to get the family involved. Everybody needs to kind of carry a positive attitude. And the only people who really get better, the people who think positively that they're going to recover and are willing to do the training And then people say, well, how much training do you need? And Carol Lee Winstein has talked about how many repetitions. And you need thousands, hundreds of thousands of repetitions to really change the brain. And people don't realize that has to be done on a regular basis. So most people would say that if you're going to improve significantly with dystonia, it's going to take up to a year and that you're going to need to be working on it every day, at least part of the day, doing some of these retraining strategies and not performing the tasks that cause the dystonia, because then you're 
undoing everything that you had started to do. So people can teach, but they're frustrated if they can't demonstrate what they're teaching on the piano. You have to change the techniques at the computer and the keyboard, and people need to move from the shoulder, the elbow, using rotation and intrinsic muscles and stop the heavy duty tapping on the keyboard that we used to use on the the typewriter, but the typewriter didn't allow that many repetitions. So with the regular typewriter, you didn't see these kinds of dystonia, right? It only became evident when we moved to the computer keyboard and the repetitions can be so quick. I'll tell you a quick little personal story. And I really haven't even realized until you and I spoke today, but when I wrote my book years ago, I actually sat down for like two months and like a big chunk of my life was dedicated to that book. So I spent hours on the computer typing, 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 thinking, thinking, typing, stress, et cetera. And at the end of certain days, my left pinky would oftentimes be twitching on its own. And I really think when I, when I listen to you talk, like it's probably the beginning or a, you know, the seeding of what could potentially be a dystonia under the right circumstances and the right conditions. My life wasn't very stressful at that point, but still that you mentioned an old typewriter is very, very slow moving, but on these new keyboards, you watch kids like on phones with their thumbs moving literally like multiple repetitions every couple of seconds. It's pretty amazing. And it has an impact. It's that reverse neuroplasticity that we're training in some ways where it's the kind of the dark side of neuroplasticity, if you will. But I think what you're saying yeah. about, and this is what I would love to get an insurance company to understand with regard to physical therapy and providing effective and better care for people is that neuroplasticity takes time. So I may need a couple more minutes with a patient or maybe a couple more visits spread out over the course of six months rather than giving me seven visits squeezed within only 30 days. That may not be a good use of my time with regard to leveraging neuroplasticity. I think the frustrating part, if you haven't read the book by Krakauer on stroke recovery, One of the major issues is that recovery takes time, meaning that you do reprogram the brain. Compensation is what they allow us to do. They give us only enough time to develop compensatory strategies to get people out of the hospital sooner, for example, with a stroke. And I think we train in the spasticity, for example, on a stroke patient who doesn't have enough voluntary motor control of the lower limb, but we gotta get them to the bathroom and we gotta get them up and walking And I think we train in spasticity because tone is the only way the leg won't collapse, right? Similarly, we teach them to feed themselves and do everything they need to do with their unaffected side because they're not going to leave them, give them enough time for PT, for example, that we can retrain the hand by forcing them to use it in driving that recovery as opposed to compensation. And in this book, recovery takes time, takes effort, takes commitment takes the imagery, it takes cognition. And recently, it's been shown that just general aerobic exercise creates a positive element for brain retraining Mm -hmm. because it increases dopamine, increases the oxygen delivery, and makes it possible for the neurons to function better. So Mike Mersnick is someone who's argued with me on panels about physical exercise And now we've come to realize that his view, there are two kinds of exercise. One is brain exercise, and the other is physical exercise. And really, the best combination is to do both at the same time. So you're doing your physical exercise, you know, you should be learning. And if you do those two things together, then the contributions to your overall well-being and recovery are greater. 
-hmm. And in our last conference together last year, he came to the reality that physical exercise was more than he had given it credit for, Mm -hmm. particularly if it was associated with cognitive brain training. Everybody needs to kind of remember that. So people shouldn't be just riding a bike or running, but they should be learning and listening even to podcasts or something while they run. Most people listen to music, which is not a learning-based activity, but if it helps you run better, I guess that counts as an element of dual tasking. So reframe that for our profession and people listening who are thinking, what does a physical therapist do? People would say, well, a physical therapist retrain your movement. But what you're really saying is a physical therapist retrains your brain, which then changes your movement patterns. Correct. Yeah. And there's a, that's and, a really and, important distinction that everyone in healthcare and even patients need to start to understand more deeply. And I think they will appreciate physical therapy and what we do as a profession even more. Rather than just the idea of, quote unquote, physical exercise. Well, there is a Dr. Lehenzi who has written several papers on dystonia. And he believes that if you would identify areas of intrinsic weakness or imbalance, let's say, in the hand, maybe limitation in range of motion, maybe limitation in strength, maybe your anatomic connections and your collagen tissues are not flexible enough to allow you to do what you want to do. He believes that if you address these biomechanical issues, the range of motion, the strength, and the movement pattern that you're looking for that's healthy, that you could prevent these dystonias and these repetitive strain injuries. Unfortunately, in all of the research on focal dystonia, there are no large randomized clinical trials. They're all small trials. Some of them are certainly randomized, but they're small numbers of patients. Many are case series, case reports. So the weakness in determining the effectiveness of what we do has been limited by these small trials. But most important thing I can say to you is all the behavioral brain training strategies that are out there that you're certainly encouraged to try and implement and integrate that best fits your patient. There are no adverse effects. It's not like having deep brain stimulation. It's not like even non-invasive brain stimulation. There are no adverse effects. There's only the possibility of making yourself better. And that should be a strength enough for everyone to be willing to try it. And they can add biofeedback, which helps. They can add braille training. They can do mirror imaging. They can do graded motor imagery. They can do learning-based, task-specific training, forced use. They can use robotics to get the repetitions to control the abnormal movements if necessary, sensory tricks. But really, all these things lead to at least some improvement to about 80%. But the better we understand matching the treatment to the patient, engaging that patient in treatment at home, that's one of the most important things we can do. And with this shelter home, I have a couple of patients who really need encouragement couple with uh, the concussion injury patient, couple with Parkinson's. So I just call them on the telephone. I'm not charging. I just call them and remind them, talk to them how they're doing, what are they doing. And I sent some home exercise program that I knew a family member had a problem and they could do the exercises together. So it takes a little more intuition to, I think, work well with the patient, even though you may not get reimbursed for that. I mean, even though we can get reimbursed for telehealth, that's only temporary. More legislation is necessary to allow us to do billable telehealth after this pandemic is over. 
Yeah. Support and motivational factors are, are such a key ingredient to everything we do as physical therapists. I, of course, want to thank you for your work. But before you go, I want, have two quick questions for you because you've been okay. in the profession now for 56 years yes. and you've seen a lot of things and your wealth of knowledge. And we've been talking now probably almost over an hour. What do you think is missing from the physical therapy profession? And what do we need to do to improve our profession to elevate it to the status that it deserves? Without being insulting, I think elevating our entry-level program to a doctorate has encouraged people to come into this profession because they want a doctoral degree. Mm -hmm. But it is not necessarily associated with people who are sensitive, who really care about people, who are willing to do what's necessary to make and address the individual differences of the patient and go beyond the, the usual. So I think we've lost a little bit of that sensitivity of what this physical therapy is all about. It's about people and it's about caring and it's about helping people learn to discover their own strengths so that they can be compliant and work towards getting better. The second thing that I think has occurred is the concern about money and the control of the insurance company in deciding what a patient needs, not just about therapy, but about medicine and surgery, uh, rather than knowing what the basic principles are and being willing to fund patients to go through a reasonable therapeutic period. Mm -hmm. And I think that interferes with our effectiveness. Most importantly, I think we need to encourage exercise is the best health management strategy. And it's better than any medicine. I remember the Surgeon General coming and saying, you know, the best medicine in healthcare is exercise. And exercise is a foundation. Movement is the foundation of what we do. Retraining movement requires understanding the individual, really being able to motivate people to know they can get better, and to be convinced that even though it's hard and maybe painful, what can I do? to really monitor and minimize the pain for recovery. And I think sometimes we're minimizing treatments that we have shown to be effective, interestingly enough, like nobody does ultrasound anymore. You can teach people to do their own ultrasound. I mean, it's something you could have in the clinic, but ultrasound increases the oxygen delivery to the wound and it does increase healing and it does control pain. TENS unit, people can buy TENS units now for $50. And TENS is a nice way to manage pain so I can do the exercise I need. But pain is inhibitory, and we need to provide not oral medications to manage pain, but physical modalities. Vibration is another wonderful thing. And using these finger vibrators, for example, to decrease tone and increase people to move better, like with Parkinson's disease. And they're doing a wonderful study on this finger vibration at Stanford. We just need to be open to the fact that there are physical modalities that can help patients manage their pain and work at home alone to engage in the activities we think they need. Yeah. But it's about caring first. Well said. It puts together the art and the science, which is, I think our profession is very much an art and a science. And exactly. we need that perfect balance. And I, and I think you're right. Since I graduated school in 1997, there's been that definite rapid shift toward more science, more evidence, blah, 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 blah. Now we have all that. That's great. And as you mentioned, we're seeing, okay, what happened to kind of the more touchy-feely therapeutic bond relationship? That part kind of got pushed a little bit to the wayside. So I do think you're 100% correct that a skillful clinician has both. Some things are difficult to teach, actually. 
And some people just can't learn it. That's right. That's right. I've seen it many, many times. Exactly. I, of course, cannot let you go without telling everyone how they can stay connected to you and all your great information. So my email is capital B-Y-L-N at U-C-S-F dot E-D-U. And you can go online to the Department of Physical Therapy and Rehab Science at UCSF. And my biography is there and some of my research studies have been summarized there as well. And we will, of course, link to all that in the show notes. So if you can't find it online in Google search, just come to the integratedpainscienceinstitute.com, find this episode and all the links will be there so you can access it. And of course, I also want to mention that the brains in this family like just continues generation by generation because your daughter, Carolyn, is a great physical therapist and has been on the podcast twice. So it's obviously been handed down through the family. So it's it's great to have you here. I really do think your research is pivotal and you have such a great blend of, as you mentioned, educator, clinician, humanitarian, because you're looking at people, you're saying, okay, people just want to get better. They want to live better what's the best way I can serve these people? So yes, there's of course the neuroscience aspect, but where's the humanitarian aspect that just giving someone a call during COVID and saying, Hey, how you doing? You can continue to do your exercise is a big portion of it. So I appreciate you bringing that to the podcast. And texting by the way is another one. So my patients text me all the time and I text them and it's, it's their way of connecting, even though we can't be together personally. So that's another thing. And I also didn't mention that dystonia is usually painless. And so the issues that are transferable between pain and movement dysfunction are fascinating because they are all connected. If there is pain with dystonia, it's usually the cramping pain that goes along with muscle excitation. But pain is not the primary feature of a focal dystonia. And I think that's why it's missed. Yeah. Make sure to share this episode out with your friends and family on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, or maybe there's a Facebook group where people have focal dystonia or clinicians are looking and they're interested in the neuroscience behind dystonia. Great information here, of course, to listen to on this episode and share with them. And of course, all the research that has been completed over the course of almost 56 years to continue to it. I want to thank you for being on the podcast and we'll see you next week. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. To subscribe to the podcast and learn more, visit IntegrativePainScienceInstitute.com. That's IntegrativePainScienceInstitute.com. Sign up to receive weekly updates, leave a review on iTunes, and share this episode with your friends.